Hi, this is Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have with me today a, uh, a fellow Chicagoan that I really want you to meet. He's a guy who uh, grew up in Chicago and uh, joined the Chicago Police Department and moved up to the rank of chief of detectives in one of the largest police departments in this country. And uh, he's doing some amazing work in retirement as well. And we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, chief Gene Roy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here with you. Hey, so uh, first of all, I want people to know about your background and how you became a Chicago police officer. Let's talk about that. All right. Well, let's talk, start with the background. And the question always is, how did you become involved in police work? Uh, and no, I don't have any family or relatives that preceded me and set a path for me. Uh, starts off in my childhood, lived on the south side of Chicago, went to school and church a few blocks away from the home. And the path from my house to school and church took me past a small neighborhood restaurant, which just happened to be across the street from a police station in Chicago. And you know what, you know, the, the affection between restaurants and cops. So it was a place where we always went, you know, we went for breakfast after mass on Sunday. We would, uh, on Friday, if we were good, if we had good grades in school, we'd get treated to an ice cream sundae over there. So of course, there's always a heavy percentage of heavy presence of police there. So I got at an early age, I was exposed to police and it was a family environment. And I got to know a number of police officers, even at that young age. And that just sparked something to me. I always wanted to be a police officer. So you rose up through the ranks and uh, ended up becoming chief of detectives in a city um, that, you know, is pretty violent. Talk about that. Um, <laughs> where where do I start? <laughs> it's, it's always a question. You know, before I became became a sworn officer in Chicago Police Department, I had a history in law enforcement. When I was a college student, I was a civilian employee of what is now the Illinois State Police. Back then, they had a separate investigative, investigative unit called the Illinois Bureau of Investigation. I was hired by them as a civilian when I was 20 years old, and my job was to answer the phone. I was a phone answerer on the afternoon shift, file clerk, and a radio dispatcher. And while I was there, I met... Uh, a number of people, and in particular, two Chicago police officers who were detailed there for a narcotics conspiracy investigation, and they took me under their wing. So I ended up really uh, progressing, and uh, from answering the phones, uh, I would end up doing leads checks for agents who were in the field while they're conducting surveillances and that. Moving on from there, I took the police test in uh, 75. I didn't make it. I ended up uh, going out to North Dakota where I worked as an investigator for the uh, North Dakota Attorney General. Um, but my heart was always in Chicago, came back and got on the job in 1986. So when, when you see what's happening now as far as the uh, politicization 
of the Chicago Police Department, you know, just in the last few years um, that, you know, and, and again, as a resident of Chicago as well, that must frustrate you, doesn't it? It actually, it breaks my heart to see what's happening here in Chicago. Uh, the level of violence is unacceptable in any city. It shouldn't happen anywhere. Um, we see a de facto defund the police movement here. Um, give you an example, a five-year period between 2017 and 2021, uh, there was an average of about 400, uh, roughly 400 retirements a year, which is normal, but still over a five-year period, it's a turnover of 2,000 to 2,500 people. It's a significant turnover, but that's natural, that's normal. But what's abnormal and what's very frightening is the number of resignations. Resignations are people who leave the police department, resign their position before they're vested in their pension, and they most of them end up working at another law enforcement agency. Now, these are people who are in that five to 10 year range, approximately. They are people who have completed their training. They've, they've got a great deal of experience. They've got the street smarts. They've made that move. They're what a union would call a journeyman, someone who can be relied upon to do a job with a minimal amount of supervision. When you lose that group, that hurts. And let me give you an example of the numbers. In 2017, the first year of the analysis that uh, I read, there were uh, 52 resignations. In 2021, there were 264. It's a five-fold increase. Now, let me put it in perspective, too. Let's assume that the Chicago Police Department has an average of 300 officers assigned per district station. When you lose 264 officers, just shy, that's just shy of closing a whole district. Overall, the department is down... 1,400 officers from where it was five years ago. And, you know, you take this, uh, you know, shorthanded staffing and you combine it, uh, for example, with not only the level of violent crime we're seeing now, but talk about the restrictive policies that are being implemented that that really hamstring the officers sometimes. Um, there's currently a case that's attracted uh, nationwide attention. Uh, there was a shot spotter uh, response to a call of shots fired in a Hispanic neighborhood. Officers arrived on the scene. They observed two people uh, at the location. One of them was armed. They gave chase, uh, ended up in an alley, and it was one of those split-second decisions. And the officer, while the officer fired, in protection of his life, he was in fear of his life. The suspect with the gun, who turned out to be a 13-year-old, was in the process of dropping the gun. A complex set of human dynamics. And, and But one of the things they are attempting to fire this officer for is for violating a foot chase policy. Now, you just had an individual who was firing gunshots on a major thoroughfare in the city of Chicago 
what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to just wave and hope that you'll see them again sometime and be able to recognize them? And then you can arrest them. That doesn't work. You need to be able to, to chase people, whether it's in a, on foot or in a car. Now, as far as car chases, also very restrictive policy. And that, you know, there's the old saying, bad policies and bad laws come from bad incidents. There was an unfortunate incident about 10, 15 years ago. An individual is being chased for what turned out to be a theft. And there was the, the chase ended in a crash that killed the pedestrian. You know, um, it's a tragedy. Uh, there's, but there's a need for being able to pursue under reasonable circumstances. Now, I'm no fan or advocate of unrestricted chase policies. Those days are over. When I was a district commander, we had an orientation day for new recruits graduating from the academy. Their last stop in their orientation day was a meeting with me. And I told them a couple things. I said, when you go home tonight, you need to have some serious discussions with yourself. The first one is, when would you shoot and not shoot? This is about to become real. This is not a training scenario. You need to have it straight in your head, and more importantly, in your heart, when you would shoot somebody. If you can't make that decision, you know, come and see me tomorrow. Let's talk. The other, the other thing I would talk with them about was the decision to chase. In my personal view, the decision to chase, chases are the same as deadly force. If you are driving down a crowded city street at 30, 40 miles an hour, it's just as deadly if you hit somebody as shooting them. You need to take that into consideration. And I told them, I stressed, you need to have that same conversation with yourself. You know, when would you chase? When would you not chase? And again, if you have a problem with that, come see me tomorrow and let's talk. Um, you know, you had contact over your career with literally thousands and thousands of Chicago police officers. And, and one of the things and one of your passions I know now is, is how do we make our officers more resilient? How do we care for them and their mental health as much as we do their physical well-being when it comes to officer safety? I saw far too many officers uh, die at their own hands. This job kills as many cops, if not more, than violent offenders. We need to stop that. Uh, I had some experiences with suicide. I had an incident. I was a homicide detective. I was a relatively new guy. Uh, there was another guy who had just transferred into the unit from another unit. So we were the two new guys on the watch, ended up working together. When I Work together for a couple of weeks, go on our days off, come back. Hey, your partner isn't here. What's going on? Have you heard from him? No, I haven't. And uh, okay, well, we better check on him. Sent somebody to his house and there he was. He had committed suicide. Uh, that really uh, made a strong impression on me. The other thing I saw was when I came on, you know, uh, there was still a generation of people supervisors particularly who had their background was military and police and a lot of them had walked across the killing fields in Vietnam 
some in Korea and one or two that were still sticking around from World War II. And the philosophy back then and the philosophy they tried to impart was suck it up, kid, get tough. You got to make it work. Well, yeah, when you're at a scene, you got to suck it up. You got to make it work. But afterwards, you got to You have to release this stress. You have to talk about your feelings. You keep it bottled up in yourself. It's going to have physical effects on you. It's going to have emotional effects on you. And you're not getting paid to take those risks. You're not getting paid to die of a heart attack when you're 45 years old or to have diabetes or to, you know, end up drinking yourself out of your family and your home and your career. You need, there's ways to do it. And, you know, it's really a passion of mine. How important is peer support when we talk about mental health care for police officers? Peer support is important because you need to know that you have a safe space, that you can sit down and talk with your partners after handling a bad job, a, a, a vicious murder, the murder of a child, a, a serious car crash of multiple fatalities. You need to know that you can talk with them. That's an informal uh, peer support. You, you need to have that. You need to be able to vent safely and if, without fearing that somebody's going to go and run to a supervisor and say, oh, officer so-and-so, you better watch him. He can't take the stress. You don't want to get into that. You need to be able to have a safe space that you can talk. And moving on from there, you need to know that the whole goal is to keep people from crossing that line from post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the key. Every cop, every firefighter, every paramedic, every dispatcher is gonna suffer post-traumatic stress. There's no getting around it. But the key is what do you do to take care of yourself so that you don't cross that line? You know, we get the question at the National Police Association a lot. What can citizens do just on a daily basis to be supportive of their local cops? What do you suggest? It starts with a simple, the simple courtesies that we all learned when we were children. Good morning. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Nice to see you. You know, and just uh, officers by their nature are outgoing, assertive people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be cops, for the most part. <laughs> they enjoy talking with people. Their whole law enforcement is about talking with people, talking with people in their worst moments, talking with people in bad moments, and talking with people in great moments. So cops, by their very nature, are born communicators. They love to talk to people. When they feel isolated, that's when they feel bad. Just say hi. When they're driving by on your block, just wave to them. Give them a thumbs up. It's that simple. That's how it starts. So if I could make you uh, king of the United States for about a day or two, what would you do to make urban America safer? First of all, we need to make sure that the police are adequately funded at the manpower levels and the assignments, the way we assign cops are the number of people, the number of officers in a particular district or area. We also need to take a look at our protocols. One of the things that I see here in Chicago is we haven't 
adapted our staffing model in two particular districts that I'm thinking of that used to be primarily industrial, but with the recent uh, way that we revitalize and uh, reuse industrial and commercial property, th those old commercial buildings, which were only occupied for eight hours a day, five days a week, are now 24-7 residences with restaurants and shops. We haven't adapted how many officers we need to properly patrol and secure that area. That's, that's critical. Um, the other thing that we need to do is police have had a tradition of always being no comment. Can't comment on that. Police need to be outgoing and to have PIOs, public information officers, that will get the message out. Show the good as well as the bad of what's going on with these police officers. Make the community that's watching, whether it's on social media, TV, or some other form of communication, cops are not bad people. 99.999% of cops are fantastic people. They're givers. Let the public, let the community that they serve see that. And finally, one of the biggest issues that we need to solve, we need, we, there's other issues that we need to solve, personnel, um, some things. I'm a strong advocate of there should be promotional testing on a regular basis. And people say, well, why would you want to do that, Gene? Why would you recommend that? Because when you have people who have their heads in the book studying for a promotional exam, that means they're keeping current with current law policies, developments. They're better. It enhances their performance as police officers. And when they know that come every third year, every fourth year, there will be a sergeant test, a detective test, a lieutenant test. It keeps them motivated to keep their heads in the books and to be prepared. Everybody wins out of a situation like that. And finally, the most important thing is we need to improve this relationship between prosecutors and the police. That's critical. There's always going to be creative friction, creative tension, whatever you want to call it, between cops and prosecutors. At a normal level, that's a good thing because it sharpens each of us in, in those respective communities. Cops do a better job of putting their cases together. Prosecutors do a better job of realizing the, the obstacles that officers face on a daily basis and putting these cases together. We need to do that. We need, because we can't hit when you have officers that work their tails off putting cases together. You know, putting a murder case together is not easy. Putting a complicated narcotics conspiracy together is not an easy thing. So you need to be, you want, you want them to have that morale. They want to know that when they come to the prosecutor's office to present a case that they're going to be treated at the same level. They're not going to be looked at, well, you're a cop, I'm a prosecutor. And I've seen that happen. I've been on the receiving end of that. I'm a lawyer. I'm smarter than you. They want to know that they're going to be treated as an equal, as a partner. Let's not rip each other apart. Let's work together to build cases. And finally, we need to do something about these ridiculous no bonds. That's terrible. There are people with uh, horrific criminal records that are being released 
on a signature, literally, before the officers are done with their paperwork. And they are just re-victimizing the communities. And of course, who gets blamed for that? The prosecutors don't get blamed. The judge gave away that signature bond. He doesn't get, he or she doesn't get blamed. It's the cops that get blamed. We need to revisit that. Do we need to hold somebody in jail on bond because they were stealing food to, for their family? Absolutely not. Do we need to keep somebody in jail who has just been arrested for a string of armed robberies and he has a repeat record and he's on parole? Yes, we need to keep those people in jail. It's a matter of public safety. If they can come up with a bond, okay, then so be it. Then they then they have some subs, but you need you need to protect the community. Don't need to be punitive. You need to protect. There's a big difference. Right. We need to go back to a a pro victim criminal justice system as a <laughs> instead of a pro offender, don't we? Let, let's let's get back to uh, where it's a fair system, and then from that point, then maybe we can get back to where it's a pro victim system. Absolutely. Chief, you've given us so much to think about. Where can people uh, find you, follow you, and learn more about what you're doing now in retirement? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as Eugene Roy, and that will give you all my contact information and give you some of my posts. You can uh, you can uh, look me up there and have them continue the conversation. I can't thank you for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.